0: All right, this uh, was a passage that came to mind as we were praying. Let me double check and see. In John 14, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit in this passage. And and his disciples, you know, they're on the other side of the cross. We're on this side of of the victory cross. But they're over here in this time. And Jesus is teaching them, you know, listen, things are going to change. And and as you engage with me now, that's going to be different. You're unique in in all of human history, these these men were. But what's going to happen is they're going to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit as you and I are. And notice what he said, the the Holy Spirit, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. And when he does that, we know it's the same power, this person of the Holy Spirit, not a power exclusively, this person of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that resides within us. So through trial, adversity, difficulty, we can say in an ignorant way, oh, I can't do that. But in a regenerate way, a born-again way, God, you, you empower me to fulfill your word, to live according to your truth, and I don't know how to do it. And so then we're taught, and then as it comes to pass and it unfolds, verse 29, and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, You may believe. The context is when the Holy Spirit would come upon them and indwell them. And they would be excited because he said in advance, this is what's going to happen. And now the application we know from the example I just shared, there's also an application where we put this into practice in our personal lives as well. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power, the same person that brings restoration to relationships, that brings healing to broken hearts, that brings life where there's just the lights going out. It's the same one who is faithful and true. He says it in advance so that when it does happen, we may believe because what? He spoke prophetically, speaking his word prior to the happening, His word in a situation, he spoke prophetically, this this is what's going to happen. Now let's jump over to Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, we're reading about something that is going to happen. Maybe, you never know, maybe God was joking. How could you really know if God was serious? Well, his prophecy is perfect to this point. It's perfect. In other words, everything that he said will take place has taken place in the time it said it would take place. There's still things to take place, which is what we're reading about, but knowing all the prophecies that were already fulfilled for the mathematical mind, for the rational mind that deals with odds and probabilities, you've been freed because 100% is a pretty good persuasion point it happened correctly all through there so it's going to take place. And I say that because what we're going to read about it, even tonight, you know, it's it's a terrible time on the planet because it's the culmination of years of rebellion, years of rejecting God. In Revelation chapter 19, you know, it's a point where the tribulation has has come to an end. Um, there's celebration in heaven taking place. The marriage supper of the Lamb has has happened. Let's read chapter 19. Pick up in verse seven, which we covered on Sunday. Let us be glad and rejoice. This is in heaven. They're saying this. Let's just. This, this is what's going down. We caught that from verse one. In verse seven, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 9, then he said to me, now this is John in heaven. He hears these words, write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. And of your brethren, who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And you can catch, as I've mentioned, you can catch more details from our Sunday study as we work through this particular book on Sundays and Wednesdays. We covered that last Sunday, carrying us up to verse 11. And i like to read verse, let's just read through 21, because that's what we're going to cover tonight, at least. Beginning in verse 11, now in Revelation 19 once again he's still in heaven and and some things are going to unfold i saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes were like a flame of fire and his head were on his head were many crowns he had a name written that no one knew except himself verse 13 he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him out on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads with the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of burning with lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword at which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's good to know where you're at when this unfolds. You make sure you know where you're going to be. Because as we see in verse 11, uh, the heavens opened up. He says, as I saw heaven open and this white, a, a white horse. And we know it's Jesus sitting on that white horse. Jesus entered the first time on a donkey. Meek and lowly coming in peace to free humanity. Now he comes as a conqueror and a ruler on a white horse. White horse indicating purity and power. Notice what we're told again about Jesus from this text there in verse 11. It's him who was called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. Faithful, we're told in the New Testament, in a letter to Timothy That even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And I like to see that as he can't stop being himself, even when we squirrel out. He still is the same. There's a constancy, and there's an important element of this. You know, we've seen it, we looked at it here just a couple weeks ago. It's important that we understand not only the promises of God, but the promises are only good as the promise maker. So it's important that we understand the character of the one who makes the promises. The one who declares, the Bible declares, not in some phony political promotion. You guys have been getting that, right? It is getting unbelievable. Literally every person is just like trashing the other person. And facts are just negotiable depends on what you think is an important part of your emphasis. I, it's, I go from the mailbox, I always do this anyway, but I go from the mailbox to the recycle bin and it doesn't even come in the house. I just literally throw it away. Just, this is ridiculous. Because there's this promotion. Because we're around people that they, they just tell you things, that they don't even have to be true. They just try to emphasize it. And I think it's important that we, we stop long enough and think about this reality. God is faithful and true. It's not just a promotion, it's a statement about who he is. And that's important to know that he's faithful and true and righteous. You know, I'm not true. I try to be because I'm born again and born of the Spirit and I'm learning. But is it possible that one of us in here, only maybe all of us in here have presented truth to the degree it still makes us look okay? So that way we're not liars. Because we didn't lie. Well, I didn't lie. I just didn't tell you all the truth. Oh, okay. A deceiver would definitely be better than a liar. <laughs> what? It's just in our nature. It's just we, in, in a pinch and in a tight spot. It's just, and we, we, we are convicted by the one who resides within us. When we do that, like, yeah, that's not, that's not accurate. He doesn't ever have that struggle. Never does he go, I'm just not going to tell him. I just don't want him to know. Now, there's times he doesn't tell us because he loves us. I love my kids. And when they were real little, there's certain things I just didn't tell them. You know, you don't want to say, well, you know, Grandpa's going to die someday, so buck it up, buttercup. You get used to it. It's like, well, how stupid would that be? You see what I'm saying? There's a lot of things we protect and we guard because it's not time yet. He's faithful and true. Notice also it says here, and this is relevant to the rest of this chapter that we've read, In righteousness, he judges. You don't judge in righteousness. You try to. I try to. But there's too much of me to judge righteously. My my this nature. And I'd like to think we could say, oh, no, no, Christians are different. No, they're not. They're actually more messed up sometimes. Because when they're not walking in truth, when they do not turn away from the, the desires of the flesh... Instead, they give room, then they find themselves stumbling. That's what we call tripping up. And so then, you know, we judge someone. In other words, we, we weigh out in the scales, the balances of our rationale in our mind. We determine this or that about them or that. And, and sometimes we're just not true. Sometimes we're not really even right. But he, his right in righteousness, he judges. He weighs the scales. That's why it's never good to come up with a way to explain to God why you can do something different. Well, I don't have to do it this way, God, because I'm going to do this. And, and this is the one I've heard for 30 years. Well, I don't really tithe. I give of my time. Like, oh, okay. what verse was that again? I'm just curious. You just, were you mentioned that? And the only reason I mentioned money, because money is a part of every element of our life. Agreed? Every element. You know, you have clothes here and you're wearing them tonight and we're all glad. Because you use money to purchase those. You see them every aspect of our lives. It's a fascinating thing, seriously, that God would use a, a weak economic monetary barter system to actually it's a process by which He purifies His saints. And and it's like I don't ever want to go, like, you know, well, I, I just I've come up with another way. He He in righteousness he judges and get this other part. In righteousness, he makes war. In righteousness, he makes war. He's like, what? How does that work? See, he actually, in this text we're reading, he judges and carries out the sentence of defeat upon those who defy him. People on earth will deny him, but more importantly, in this time we're reading about, they will defy him. Even try to war against him and kill him. That's literally what we're seeing unfold. The, 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 the people remaining after the tribulation period. in this battle, this last battle before the millennial reign. They're going to actually think they can kill God. That's literally what they're going to try to do. And I think, that didn't work out so good the first time. Really. You know, because you think about it, there's things going on, and they decided, okay, let's just eliminate him. Because it seems best for the nation. Better that one should die, and then the whole nation be spared. But it didn't work out, because they're not recognizing who they're dealing with. Let's move on, and we'll get back to this, this point. In verse 12, we see, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except him. Fire speaks of judgment, uh, even authority over, I, I like to think of perishable opponents, or, or those who can't withstand the fire. Um, the crowns speak of crowns of victory, of authority, of power, of superiority. The word there is not a, a crown that would be like, a. Uh, I can't remember the, the Greek name for the one that's a, an achievement, where if you won in the Olympic Games, you got this type of crown. And it was usually um, with leaves, and it was very perishable. It didn't last long at all. The word there is, is actually diadems. You know, so that's the crown, and the cr- that's a crown of victory. That's a, usually a crown of metal, a, a crown that would, would, would weather over time. It spoke of, like I said, power, authority, superiority. And so that, he's wearing multiple crowns, which is interesting, because we're not given a lot of detail. But I think they represent the crown of every form of human government, every form of opposition, every form of authority. He'll he'll wear that crown. It was not uncommon for victorious uh, king conquerors to, at least for a short period, wear the crown of the king they conquered. After they conquered them, they put almost in mockery, but actually showing, I am now the one in authority. We see also that he he has a name that no one knew except himself. Now, I don't know if they just couldn't pronounce it. I think it's much deeper than that. But we do have a glimpse from the Old Testament, right? Yahweh? The Hebrews would just use the letters, and so we'd call it Yahweh because we have to throw some vowels in there to say it. But we really don't know how it was pronounced. I actually think there may be a heavenly language. I'm actually convinced that there will be to some degree. I believe this is a divine description that we have not heard yet. Because we, we, don't, we can't fathom, we can't grasp the totality of the nature of God while we live here. And I think we're going to be learning, even in heaven, we're going to be amazed and in awe at the nature and the, and the perfection and the beauty and, and every element of, of who he is. So, it's interesting. So, the kings, this whole... Uh, presentation and the way John's seeing him, you know, it's a visible manifest- manifestation of what's meant when it says king of kings, king of kings and Lord of lords. And this is, it's an expression of un- unlimited sovereignty is another way to know it. Notice in verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Let's turn over to Isaiah 63, and that'll help us, I think, understand, you know, most Christians, when we think of him dipped in blood, we automatically think towards communion or his blood that was shed for us, but I believe this Isaiah 63 passage will give us a little different glimpse of what this is, because this is speaking of this battle that is to come. It's not going to be a battle, actually, but it sounds like it. Six, Isaiah 63, verse 1, Who is this who comes from Eden with dyed garments from Bolzra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Does that sound like anybody we've read about there in chapter 19? I, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Verse 2, Why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? You understand what they do in a winepress, right? It's a container with a bunch of grapes in it, and you're going to squish them all. So you would hike up your garment, and you would stomp around, and you know, it would splash up, and you, know, get the, you get the picture. Verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought them down, and brought down their strength to the earth. Jumping back to Revelation chapter 19. It says also in verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. His name is called, we know that as well if you've studied John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to tell us, I believe, about chapter one, verse fourteen, and and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we see this association and this this you know clarity from scriptures on who Jesus is. And the Word really, as He declares this, you know, is, brings truth, brings understanding. Moving on, we see now in in verse fourteen, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean, followed him on white horses. We see that being declared the, the white robes, white and clean. Most scholars hold this to be the church uh, and the and the tribulation saints. Let me read to you what Charles Spurgeon said in regards to the church at this time. I found it very provoking, a very, a, a very interesting insight. On that day... Everyone will see the church for what she really is, the precious bride of Jesus. The bride of Christ is sort of a Cinderella now. Sitting among the ashes, she is like her Lord, despised and rejected of men. The watchmen smite her and take away her veil from her, for they know not her, even as they knew not her Lord. But when he shall appear, then shall she appear also. And in his his glorious manifestation, she also shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Isn't that interesting? Because, see, the church, even as we know now, is not looked on the way God looks upon his children. It's a different view. He was not looked upon as God of this world, as Savior of the world. But there will come a time, and we're reading about it, when that will all change when humanity will realize what they've done. Now, who are these people based, dressed in this, in this passage that speaks of in verse 14, the armies in heaven? In Jude, uh, the letter just before Revelation, it states, behold, the Lord comes when 10,000 of his saints, and he's quoting uh, what Enoch had said, and this would mean that those Jude refers to would be the Old Testament saints. So they would be a part of this army, I believe. Um, not only that, um, there's the the heavenly angels that will be joining the group to which to watch as, as Jesus takes his throne as the King of Kings, all riding on heavenly horses. It's interesting. Um, I don't recall. I don't recall any other creature from Earth residing in heaven. Just saying, horses are included, right? They're riding on horses. Now, some will say, well, that's symbolism. It doesn't say they were riding on something like a horse, some cross between a camel and a donkey or something. It just says this is what they're riding on. So, because people have these questions, right? None of you would, but some people have. Well, what about Fido? What's happening with my dog? What's happening with my cat? Well, cats don't go up. Cats go down. Just kidding. (laughs) I have a cat. I'm going to, you know, preface that. Cats are okay. God said we have dominion over these animals. What's going to be in heaven? He's already decided that'll be good. You won't be missing Lassie. You won't be, you know, wishing, you know, Garfield made the cut or whatever. You know, literally we're going to be so enraptured with the Lord. But I do kind of wonder if there's certain creatures that he would adorn heaven with just because he can, just because he did it here, you know, he just might do that. So, um, looking at this passage, as you see the armies in heaven, those clothes that fine linen. Um, like I said, there's been a lot of discussion who they are. I, I don't know. It just—it's quite a group. Some have talked about, you know, it's because it says their armies—they're coming to go to battle. Um, you just need to finish the chapter because there's no battle in Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo. There's a whooping, but there's no battle. Notice in verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This large sword is what's used. It's not a like a knife like Peter would have used to cut an ear off. Um, this is a, a, literally a big sword. I, I imagine it to be one that they used to take the head off of a conquered king it, It's a large saber is what it is is what he's referring to. So is it just the imagery, which I believe so, but it's conveying not something small and you know yielded in a rapid way and not overly effective. Let's go together over to Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, you've read it. I think you're probably familiar with this that we're going to. In verse 12, speaking of the word of God, which we know who we're talking about, because he has his name as the word of God. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. gives us a picture of, of what's being stated, even some background, if you would, a little bit in regards to no one, you know. I mean, it, the beautiful thing about the Word of God in our current time is it cuts through the excuses and it cuts to the point and it frees us from our carnal logic and our weaknesses and our opinions. And it just frees us from that and it takes us into the direction of God. We won't receive the direction of God until we've let go of the direction from this world. They're two different directions. And so we see here, that it's, it's, it's not the uh, lifestyle application as much as we see here. He's, he's going to just, it's going to cut right through. And he will strike the nations and he will rule them. There in verse 15 of Revelation 19, with a rod of iron, he himself treads the winepress in the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. To understand that, we need to remember He who sat on this horse, in verse 11, was called faithful and true. And he's righteous. We need to remember or see us back in Revelation 15, um, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of Saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. Why do I bring us back to that point? Because that's how we have to work through the fierceness of his wrath of the Almighty God. See, in our minds, it's a struggle. We know he's faithful and true. And if that becomes our point of reasoning, we're going to do well. But we also in this life will not fully understand how perfect love is expressed in divine judgment and wrath, correct? How do you reconcile that? The God of love, this perfect love, as we try to figure out and understand what that love is, relationally, but more specifically, biblically, how is, how is that love? Because it's also going to be manifested in judgment and wrath, and it, 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 it's a... It's a quandary. It's an enigma. It's hard to reconcile. We can't separate from the humanity. We can't, you know, we, we, we can't eliminate the possibility of friends or relatives going through this period right here. So we have a hard time reconciling. And we'll be shipwrecked if we don't have a foundation. If we don't have a place to anchor this, this mental boat of uncertainty... If we don't anchor it somewhere, then we are going to be adrift, the Bible tells us. Where do you anchor it? I anchor it on John 3.16. For God so loved the world, so poetically, no, practically. He did something. He, he gave himself, his son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So now I'm anchoring on the character of God. I'm anchoring on the promises of God. I'm anchoring on what is true historically and eternally he is faithful and true so knowing that i now can let those questions circulate a little bit but they don't get the they they don't get the importance you know squeaky wheel gets the oil have you ever heard that one you know and and if someone's really a hassle then you deal with them because they're a hassle well there's a point when you park these things on this foundation they just aren't that loud to you anymore i just know god is going to handle it perfectly. I don't, I, don't, I, can't, I don't even try to reconcile how his wrath being poured out is also an expression of love. I can talk through it. I can rationally explain some portion of it. But I have to become almost sterile and cold to do that. I have to park emotion. I have to park this human experience and then talk about it in a detached philosophical way. And then when I get home at night, I'll be thinking about, yeah, but what about this? You see what I'm saying? I think sometimes, you know, people get really confused, and they'll say things like, you know, well, I just can't follow a God who, who you know, is going to pour out his wrath. Well, see, you've got two options, good or evil. You see good and a little bit with God, and you're concerned that maybe there's a little bit of evil present. Well, tell me why you're following the one that's totally evil, because you got one or two choices. You either worship God or you worship the one who hates God. That's the options in this life. You see what I'm saying? It's funny how people are so quick to, to try to find fault with God, but they have no problem with the devil. They don't even want to dissect that. It's like, I would think you would start there first, actually. That's what I would want to you know, go, but anyway. Let's move on here in verse 16. He has on his robe and his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who he is. He this will be manifested. It's not who he will become. That's who he is. He didn't say I will be. He told Abraham, "Tell them this person sent you." I am. He is. He is not like I will be. It's so important. We live in the framework of birth to, to death. We live in a very small continuum, very small time frame. So it's hard to reference that he has always been good. And even these questions and philosophical ponderings and wonderings about, well, then why didn't he do this? And why did great God this way? And all this stuff, it doesn't change him. He is still the same. It's important for us to understand the word of God, to understand the ways of God, to know the person of God, because he is and he always has been. He has always been the same. And there's not a different God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Colossians Colossians 1 tells us that he was there in the beginning and he's the creator of all things that were created. So it's not like, you know, God the Father, Jesus the mediator to cool the old man down and take care of things and the Holy Spirit just to make everybody feel good. Because that's almost the way people talk sometimes when they're trying to process the triunity of God. God is the same. I mean, there's this distinct personages, and we see the various aspects, but he's still the same. Does that make sense? When we settle that, then we can work through these things without really having our faith shipwrecked, but rather it'll, it'll grow deeper. Verse 17 Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. This is the final battle, building up to the final battle before the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign. We were at the marriage supper of the lamb, we will be. The enemies of God will be at the supper of God. This is actually not a good thing to be invited to because you will be the dinner. That's literally what this is describing. And it says, you know, this angel, and this is amazing, this angel standing in the sun. So you can't even look at the sun, but this angel is going to stand and be visible to some measure. I don't think he's phosphorescent, so he glows more because he's there. But I just think it's just the, it's just it's conveying this particular servant with this position and authority, bringing in, ushering in, because you've seen that they've ushered in different time frames, or, um, experiences, or judgments, whether it's through the trumpet, the seal, uh, the bowl judgments, various things. The angels were involved. And so this other angel, this, he is, he's, he's ushering this in. Verse 18, the birds are invited, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. All who defy God will be defeated, small and great and rich and poor and weak and powerful. All the people that are still here on earth, after the tribulation period, rather than being softened by seeing the power of God, Rather than responding to his invitation of grace during the tribulation, his mercy extended, they will continue to fly the finger towards the face of God. They will continue to defy him. And this tells us that that, that, will, they will, that will be their end. None will, none will survive. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. How arrogant. See, if we remember back to what the Bible tells us, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jews from that point forward plotted to kill him. Can we just enter in a little strategy, a little logic, a little rationale? So this guy comes along, and he knew this guy from Bethany named Lazarus. So this Jesus guy shows up. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. So we're going to kill that guy who raises people from the dead. Can you, are we tracking here? See, arrogance makes idiots, really. Because, they, I mean, I'm, my logic says, well, what good would that do? He'll just come back from the dead. <laughs> he proved he can do it already once. I mean, we should, we, need to, we should just tie him up or something. I don't know. But that part ain't going to work. But instead, it, it didn't change. After the, the resurrection, you know, Jesus told people that he would rise from the grave. And some wondered and some sought to kill him, even when he told them that. And now, after the resurrection and the ascension and the power of God manifested for a couple thousand years, revealed in, in various ways, his enemies are now still going to try and kill him. My little short statement, I like short statements, I can remember them. Um, Hate produces fools. Hate produces fools. And And they literally become so hateful. Humanity, it's nothing new to you. You know that some people are just hateful people. But it produces fools. It costs them their own life because of their hatred, and and, and it's definitely the soil that arrogance flourishes in, which produces more hatred, which produces more foolishness. But arrogance will fall like a tree in a storm. We recently were up in the pine area and drove through some sections that the wind had whipped through, and just a week or two ago, the trees were standing fine, but when that... Wind hit it and just snap some of them off, and they're done. They'll not stand back up just this, like that in a moment. And, and that's really what we're going to see as we read through this section. This was happening in this particular, as they say, a battle. They came out to war against Jesus here in verse 19, but there's no war. I mean, there's no battle in the valley of Megiddo. The battle of Armageddon was not a battle at all, it will not be a battle at all. Because notice what happens there as we go on to verse um, 20. They've gathered together against Jesus. We see in 19. Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet. Who worked signs in his presence. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire. Burning with brimstone. They were cast into this lake of fire. And you notice they were cast in a line. They were, they, these are two that a lot of people had put their hope in. These are the ones that they had been convinced. This is the economic system. This is the, the political system. This is the religious system. This is a work. And we've seen back in chapter 17 and 18, this whore, this Babylon, it was called, these, these systems, there was really one expressed in, in two ways, religious and then uh, uh, political economic side. That went down. And now these two, which are still in defiance, are cast into the, the alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Verse 21, And the rest were killed with a sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The rest, meaning those, some look at some of the passages, and they say, well, there's oh, possibly a couple hundred million army gathered together. Um, it's not the army. It's not the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, that probably takes place. This, I, I would strongly lean towards that taking place prior to the tribulation, possibly even before the rapture of the church. Kind of in that time frame taking place when the uh, Russia. Syria, uh, those from the, from the north and east will come against Israel. Um, that actually could be one of the triggers, potentially. But this battle here, um, they've all come together. There's going to be one more, but it'll be at the, it'll be at the end of the thousand-year reign, the end, end of the millennial reign. Let's read verses 21 through 3, and that's going to be where we're going to leave off as well as pick up on our next study. Now he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years was finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while." So I wanted to read that because it's, they're all being shut down, so to speak. The, as we see, the Antichrist and the beast, they're already put in eternal separation, damnation, if you would. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Um, we'll get into a little bit in the next study because people sometimes have different opinions about things that maybe... We shouldn't spend too much time differing about. In other words, well, it's not meant to be a thousand years literally. It's spoken of allegorically or it speaks of a long period of time. But when we limit ourselves to certain rules of interpretation, then it affects how we interpret. I know that's kind of a Danism, but you know, it's like it's going to affect it. And it says that, you know, um, bound him for a thousand years. And it, it literally has not given us a simile or a metaphor. It's, it's speaking specifically. And I found that when it says things very simple, very straightforward, that's the best way to take it. Because if we have to, well, it says over here this, and then it meant this over here back in the Old Testament, and we start trying to piece all this together, we've got to kind of, well, it, it actually does say a 1,000 years. It's a 1,000-year millennial reign that will take place after this... You know, supper of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb was in heaven with the church, with the, with the tribulation saints, with his, his bride. And then here on earth, shortly thereafter, is this judgment supper. And then after that, there will be the millennial reign. And then at the end of the millennial reign, Satan will actually be loosed. Some will say, well, why cut him loose? And I think we'll see, um, in part... You and I have an experience that the millennial saints won't have. The millennial saints will not be deceived. They will not be tested. They will not be tempted. Because the top two, the top three, one's locked up and the two are burning. So that's your enemies. And so that that millennial reign is going to be a fascinating time, quite honestly, historically. And I believe that for love to be known, there has to be... An exercise of will and volition. In in other words, the ability to choose. And as odd as it is that even when the deceiver's not there, there is in human nature this desire to go against God's direction. The wet paint theory, the sign that says wet paint do not touch, bingo. You didn't have to have the little red Guy sitting next to the bench with a pitchfork going, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. He's, there's just something in us. Well, that millennial reign will be fascinating, but then I believe Satan, in part, will be released, and he will then give them an option. They live a longer life. Uh, there's some things called thermobaric chamber. I'll get into that maybe a little bit next time we study it, about how the reason they'll live longer and some potential things that will change atmospherically from the tribulation period to the start of the millennial reign. But nonetheless, they're going to live a long time, and, but they are not really, they don't really know love because they haven't chose. And you'd think, we'd go, wait a minute, this is evil? This is really good. I don't want anything to do with evil. But you know, in the nature of man, in, in, in this room even, in listening online, there are times we know what to do, but we do not do it. We know this would be the right thing to do, but I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do this. And it's just sad, really, honestly, because what's it reap? Pain, heartache, it does not produce what we hope it would. So anyway, what's gonna happen in that millennial reign that thousand year period is, it'll be phenomenal, amazing. You and I will reign and rule in that time, according to what the Bible says. And then there will come um, the great white throne judgment and then a few other things that are pretty phenomenal, which we will catch in chapters 21 and 22. So let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. And Lord, as we look forward to you calling us home, may we also be submitted to saints, surrendered saints, born-again Christians that believe your power is evident, present, and critically important to our lives that your ways are true and righteous, and that you are faithful. You've taught us, Lord, that if we lack, we're to seek you. If we're overwhelmed, we're to learn to lean on you. If we're confused, to trust in you, Lord. And so, God, may it be true, Lord, in our lives in every way, as we encourage one another, as we strengthen one another, as we seek you to lead and direct our lives, Lord God, that our lives would be an expression of the truth you've given us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. Direct our steps, Lord, that we can be a light to those around us an encouragement and a hope for your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.